This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au, one of the best catering companies in Sydney. We love Glenna Maria. Thank them for us on our behalf by going and seeking them out online. Uh, they've been a huge supporter of the show. Why are you cooking when you're having friends over? You're like going to the websites and checking if you're in New South Wales or you're in Sydney to check that you're going to be compliant for the amount of guests you're going to have at your house. It's stressful. It's hard. Why cook? Go to bellacatering.com.au. They're incredible. You can buy a raft of food from those guys. They'll deliver it to your home, and then you can feed the army of people that are in your house, and when they go away, you'll have plenty of leftovers to eat with the rest of your fam. The best. Bellacatering.com.au. We have an amazing returning guest, literally a buoyant light in this show, and uh, someone I'm so grateful to have spoken to. We're kicking off the show with a clip from a documentary about her father. Now... We begin. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air and stay there for a day without a book, without a magazine, without a newspaper, without a profit and loss sheet or a rating book to distract you. Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. Creamy lather, beautiful body. You will see a procession of game shows, formula comedies about totally unbelievable families. Blood and thunder, mayhem, violence, Sadism, murder, Western bad men, Western good men, private eyes, gangsters, more violence and cartoons. And endlessly commercials, many screaming, cajoling, and offending. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Um, in this project, I've been so blessed having a, such an incredible array of guests. And every every week I look back at the schedule. I know it's kind of boring, but this is what I do. I look at the schedule as I'm assembling the show and organizing and booking everyone to be a part of it. And I just am flabbergasted uh, at the incredible guests that I've had along the way. It's 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 arguably the be even better than one heat minute. When I go back though, um, there aren't many people that I ask back because I've just been so uh, so overwhelmed with the response to the show and the people that are being part of it that I don't ask for many people back. But uh, this person who I got to speak to all of 84 episodes ago, if you're listening and playing along at home, which is insane to even say in a year, um, is so, so lovely we've been having like little cheeky bits of dialogue since our original discussion has even sent me photos because we talked about, we'd, I'd fantasized about a walking tour of Washington and, and her as my tour guide, but the world changed. And so not only do I have uh, one of the editors of rogerebert.com and just a, a, a talented and enduring film critical voice to be a part of this show. I have a person who is a Washington resident, a person who is also a qualified lawyer, a person who attended the Watergate hearings to come back. And when we talked about it before, I was just blown away by her fandom and her kinship for this film with all of that like actual context of who she is. But since then, 
she's lived in the Watergate era. It is 2020. It is Watergate 2.0 era. 2020 is a crazy year. Washington has been a crazy town. And we are now recording this on the 19th of October. And I don't think a town like Washington could be any more crazy than right now, like literally two to three weeks out from an American election. It's such a pleasure to talk to the wonderful Nell Minow. Nell, thank you so much for coming back to All the President's Minutes. Oh, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you, Blake. I'm so happy to be back to talk about one of my favorite movies. And yes, I did send you a photograph of myself at the very location we're going to be talking about today. That, that is exactly why. So I, 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 we had an email exchange because I was going through the email correspondence I'd had on the show. And there is a photo of Nell at the plaque that says this is the location that was chosen by Woodward to talk to Deep Throat that broke Watergate. And I was like, I can't believe I hadn't thought of this before, but like back when I received the email, I think in July, but I think everyone was going through it in July. So it's now October. I was actually able to think straight again, but here we are. It's like, I was like, Oh, well, I, I have this moment in this scene there's no one else who sent me a photo of them at this very place in both in the reality of this uh, great docudrama. Um, so I thought it would just be remiss of me not to at least try and have you involved in the scene somehow now. Great. Well, thank you. You're welcome. How, I mean, you're, you're a lawyer. You've been, since I last spoken to you, you've been through pandemics, you've been through <laughs> civil unrest, you've been through impeachment trials. I mean, as such a fan of this movie, and someone who attended the Watergate trials and began their career in Washington and was in the town and that energy, is it act, does it actually feel like it did at the time that it was unfolding back around Watergate, uncertainty, political upheaval? Like, does it feel like that again? Or is, it, or is that just the romantic version that we like to tell ourselves that's happening right now? Well, there's a saying that is often attributed to Mark Twain, although I gather he didn't really say it, but let's give it to him because it's, <sighs> one of my favorites, which is that history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yes. And, and we seem to be in that moment right now. Um, the, the movies that I have watched most recently, uh, including one that just uh, came out this weekend, is, uh, is um, The Trial of the Chicago 7, yes. which is incredibly resonant. And another thing which I lived through because I was actually in <laughs> Chicago while that was going on. Oh, I, no. I think follow me around. But yeah, I was, a, I was a teenager. I was in high school uh, when the Chicago, trial of the Chicago 7 was happening. And it was, we were all completely obsessed with it because it was happening in our town. And later, as a uh, young law student, I actually had some run-ins myself with um, Judge Hoffman, who was terrible. He was every bit as bad as we, as we as, think. As, so, as Frank Langella plays him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Frank Langella plays him. Yeah. He, he, was, he was just unbelievably bad. But uh, uh, you know, so I, I feel that there are so many parallels between the unrest of that time and now. And then I have to say to myself, what followed that unrest? It was kind of the somnolent 80s where people were all about buying, you know, six different kinds of balsamic <laughs> vinegar and spending money, you know, and uh, yuppies. And so I'm a little worried about that. One thing I think about a lot is about the uh, kids and the teenagers who are growing up now and about how these experiences are going to influence them, not just politically, but particularly creatively. Um, you know, the fact that the Trial of the Chicago 7 uh, movie is coming out now is because 
we are very aware of those parallels. I have to tell you something very funny because I was just in an interview with Aaron Sorkin. Oh my God. Yeah, about the movie. The, and which people can see that interview right now at movie mom at movie at, sorry at moviemom.com uh, and he he said something very funny he's a little younger than I am he said Steven Spielberg invited him over for a Saturday morning he said I don't want you to think that's the kind of thing that happens to me a lot you know <laughs> Steven Spielberg invited me over and I went over and he said I'm thinking of, this is in 2006 okay so if you cast your mind back in 2006 he said I'm thinking about uh, making a movie about the Chicago Seven, I'd like you to write the screenplay. And Aaron Sorkin said, "That's a wonderful idea. I would be happy to do that." And he got in his car and he called his father and said, "Who are the Chicago Chicago Seven? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that is he, exactly the correct response to have if someone ever, like Steven Spielberg, asked you to do that. Yes, oh, absolutely. He said, "Steven Spielberg asked me to take out the." trash and I would say yes absolutely so that is of course the correct response or a chance to work with him and then uh, the uh, he wrote the script uh, and then the writers uh, strike happened and mm. various other things happened and and he ended up directing his first film Molly's game and Spielberg said to him I want you now to direct the film and you know and yet somehow it seems to have come out at exactly the right time and he said yeah. i want you to know i didn't change a word of that original script from 2006 i didn't change a frame of the film uh he said we were on a collision course with history and that's why it seems so vibrant and alive to us now yeah i mean aaron sorkin famously he sort of it's, it's he's he's come up on the show quite a few times and that's because He's so he's so influenced by Bill Goldman and so yeah. enamored by this movie. You know, he, he and he even talks about his relationship with Bill Goldman and then eventually David Fincher's relationship with Bill Goldman. And he's like, at a, at a screening of The Social Network, he famously said, "Now, I ripped off all the President's Men to make this movie. <laughs> it's like if all the President's Men doesn't exist and Bill Goldman doesn't exist, I can't make this movie. And nor can David because David and I were so, you know, we were kind of his guys. And then we were on a collision course to make that movie together because separately we'd been so involved with Bill Goldman and influenced by him, and he was like our mentor. And then we came together to make this movie. And so I feel like, you know, the. The, the kinship that you can have with a director or, or another filmmaker because of, of that relationship that you have with one another is so important. And I wanted to, because you just touched on it and it's something that has definitely come up. My, my review of the trial of Chicago seven is about to go up and my entry point to that movie, which I wanted to talk to you about now that we've started talking about it is John Doman as John Mitchell. So when you begin <laughs> watching that movie, I think someone like you would understand this deeply. I'm like, when they when John Doman walks out and he is John Mitchell, and you may have had five years of experience with him on the wire, and you see him and this manifestation of just like completely casual and passive kind of corruption and almost like an, a figure of evil. I'm just like that as soon as that casting decision is made, I'm like, I know that this. I know I'm going to have a real affinity and a love of this movie. I, I mean, I, I may not think it's the greatest movie of all time. Obviously we're talking about one of my favorites ever, but just that casting decision, I was like, Oh, Sorkin gets it. Cause John Doman is so perfect for John Mitchell. 
he's been ripped out of the receiver of the telephone in this movie that we hear him on where he talks about Kay Graham having a titty stuck in the ringer and is placed into reality in that movie. I'm like that, that casting decision is enough. You only need, that's his, the only resume this movie needs to have a connection with all the president's men is that exact moment. Yeah, he he is absolutely great in it. Everybody, I, in my, I give it an A minus. So yeah. I, I love the movie, and it's definitely going to be in my top ten of the year. Uh, but um, uh, he, the, he, that casual thuggery, oh, uh, you know, yes. uh, is uh, is is just perfect in it. And as for the casting, I have to say, I was a little bit concerned that all the top roles are being played by Brits, yes. and I didn't know how that was going to <laughs> yeah. work. Um, even though it's been my experience that generally speaking, British actors are better at American accents than Americans <laughs> are. <laughs> they're, they're more specific with, uh, with their accents. And of course, Abby Hoffman was from Boston and had a lot of Boston in his accent. We hear that from Sasha Baron Cohen. But I was to say that, you know, Mark Rylance. Oh, Eddie Rylance Redmond, is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, uh, Alex Winter and, uh, uh, you know, they, they, and, and Sasha Baron Cohen, all absolutely terrific. And Michael Keaton also blew me away in this. And I'm a huge yeah. Michael Keaton fan, but he was fabulous. Yeah. He's, he's a joy. He's a joy. I think, uh, I think Sean Burns, who you would know, great Bostonian film critic says, um, uh, says that a couple of the very choice, uh, uh, swear laden lines from Michael Keaton is like, if I still had ringtones, it would just be all the lines of dialogue. <laughs> That Michael Keaton speaks in this movie because he's so jo- he's so joyfully uh, a thorn in the now yeah. John Mitchell Nixon side, and he takes such joy in it. But no, I, I it's you know I, I I feel like I feel like you you put it best, which is that it doesn't necessarily repeat, but the rhyme the rhyme is getting too coincidental right now. So I feel feel like it's a bit crazy, and also. I'm I'm really lucky to speak to you on the precipice of the American election, but for for this show and the the dialogue around this movie, it's going to be a very crazy. Uh, it's going to be an interesting time coming up to see what the tone of the show is, depending on the result of the American election. Well, I have to tell you, I don't know how closely you follow American politics. My father. Uh, who is 94 years old and just the greatest guy on earth. And there's actually a wonderful documentary about him, which I'll send you the link to. Please. Uh, um, just to give you an idea, uh, his career includes uh, uh, working with uh, President Kennedy and Barack and Michelle Obama met in his office when Barack was a summer intern in his office. So it's really quite a story. Anyway, my father created the presidential debates. He's been involved with every one of the presidential debates, and he's still the vice chair of the presidential debates. And as you can imagine, they're having like meetings every single day to try to figure out what is going on. What's going on? Yeah, especially yeah. especially because, firstly, it was, and perhaps completely reasonably so, uh, Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden said, I'm not going to do a face-to-face debate with the guy who's just had COVID-19. I've been trying to protect myself, you know, not a, especially not a maskless debate with the guy who doesn't necessarily it's believed in the veracity. Sitting there with no mask. Yeah. Actually, the debate commission said, we're not going to, we're not going to expose anybody. They violated all our rules the first time around. We're just not going to give them that chance. And, yeah. and yet... I, I refuse to do a virtual one. No, we're not going to do a virtual one. Not even going to do in separate rooms in the same space. No, we're not doing a virtual one. And then 
on two networks in the States, NBC, ABC, there's two town halls. And it's like, wasn't this meant to be a debate slot? Like, what, what, what well, were they meant to be having? It a- was, yeah. And not only that, but I just have to say that it was just something which I did not know until uh, this month, which is that in those first debates, the first ever uh, presidential debates of Kennedy and Nixon, where my dad was very involved, uh, they did have a virtual debate. They were in two different states, and they just, and we, even with the limited technology they had in 1960, they somehow made that happen. Ronald Reagan also had a remote debate as one of his, uh, in one of his debates. So it's not like it's never happened before. It's not like we aren't doing this all the time now. I mean, there have, there, there are still big television shows, especially even in the run-up to elections. It happens in Australian elections and in British elections. When there becomes finally, I mean, in America, there's a lot more ceremony around the nominee. Mm-hmm. But once you know the leader of an opposition, I think we we pretty much, that's that's the sort of English slash Australian vernacular for it. There are plenty of opportunities for like live crosses between states if they're in different states and uh, discussions about different topics and you know what do you, what do each of you have to say about xyz and it's not necessarily in the form formality but like there's such a thing as a live cross you know right there's a and, fo- and there's a phone they- line that was put between washington dc and the kremlin after the cuban missile yeah. crisis i think things can, i mean that's <laughs> i think people can have well, conversations as, remotely as somebody said if we're expecting second graders to go to school remotely, we can certainly expect <laughs> the president. If the uh, president conducted Ukraine, you know, I think yeah. we can make that work. But I think, frankly, uh, he knew he came across badly in the first one. He's just trying to get out of it. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it, you know, it is ridiculous. And and I think if my dad were on your show, he would say the purpose of the debates is that it's our only opportunity scripted, and when they're under a lot of pressure, those are important things for us to know. We already know what their policies are. We know what their record is. Yes. And, and, so we and we want to know who they are. We want to know who they are under pressure. And I think that also this is the, the big commentary because in, you know, in the lead up to the 2016 election, it was a, there was a lot of, there was hostility within the Republican party at some of the debates that then led to the nomination. There was a lot of host, like incredible hostility, probably actually even less cordial than what eventually happens in very hostile debates with Hillary um, at that time. But um, to your point, it's like, yeah, to your, to your point, it's that these moments now and how people deal with them, it was a large part about the base actually saying, Oh, well, you know, some some folks found it to be uh, essential, you know, challenging. You know, they had this mindset that it was, you know, challenging the political establishment and someone coming in and being a disruptor, and that's fair enough. But it's like also after four years, having someone who feels more equipped to stand across from them with more, definitely more experience in in the executive branch is like the number two person in the country for eight years, standing there and and just even going, man, will you shut up? Like, like, I mean, just the reality of like, oh my God, that is what everyone has been feeling. It may yeah, even people. A great legal term for that. Uh, it's called demeanor evidence. And yes, yeah. uh, that is when the witness is on the stand and he's sweating and he's nervous. You know, you it, it, it tells you something that you wouldn't know if you were just reading words on a page. Yeah. The demeanor evidence from both of those people was one person was really tired at the other person. You know, there's, there's a, there's a great line, uh, you know, this, the, another show, another show that's come up on this, on this show, 
There's a great line in The Simpsons. Ricky Gervais, the British comedian, gets to write an episode of The Simpsons. Is like he talks about it being like a career, one of his career highlights. And any comedian worth their salt to be involved with The Simpsons is absolutely huge. And there's a moment where his his character is there and is engaging with Homer, Dan Castellaneta, and they're having a conversation. He's just spouting all this nonsense in that very Ricky Gervais office quality. And he has Homer respond to himself. So it's like a big, a big dig at his own personality. He says, you take forever to say nothing. And that the, the whole year I've just heard been watched and been following American politics as part of my ongoing research and preparation for this show. And I just go, you take forever to say nothing. There was nothing substantial in anything that you've just said right now. Um, and even then, you know, the big, a big, part of this year's news cycle was Jonathan Swan, um, who works for Axiom, an Aussie journo now living in the United States, yes. gets a great interview. And, Amazing. And asks, Amazing interview. And, and is allowed to ask follow-up questions uh, and, you know, some great memes of his puzzled, confused face throughout the year coming up. Um, yeah, it's a man. Well, he wasn't expecting someone who did his homework. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and also then going, oh, here's a, here's a stat. And the yeah. best thing ever going, show me what you're looking at. Yeah. What are you looking at? What is this? Where are these stats? Show me them. What are you, oh, this compared to this, but that doesn't count. That doesn't. Um, and yeah. And even in the, this week, you know, this past weekend and still your weekend's news cycle, the New Zealand in the context of politics uh, around the world, New Zealand had their election. Jacinda Ardern was, uh, was reelected as the prime minister of New Zealand. And, yes, overwhelming. Uh, overwhelming, overwhelming. And there's been a lot of uh, sort of hit pieces in conservative media going, oh, well, you know, her, her pandemic response, you know, some crazy articles coming out with headlines like Jacinda Ardern's pandemic response was lunacy and unsuccessful. And then, you know, and they're coming from the British press and they, they just had a stat. They just showed how many COVID-19 related deaths in New Zealand, five. How many COVID-19 related deaths in Britain? 49,000. And it's like, uh, I think you can, you may criticize her for any number of things, but when you talk about the pandemic response is literally what put a whole bunch of swing voters on her side. Yeah. The best in the world. (laughs) And all of the countries that are at the top of that list are led by women. Yeah. Yep. Trust me, we, uh, us in Australia have been tr- trying desperately to get over to even New Zealand. I think it, like a lot of us are like, please, uh, can, can you let us back in? We used to have this great relationship where you could travel to New Zealand. You didn't need visas and stuff like that. And now everyone's like, huh, remember when you used to make a joke about us coming to your country? No, 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 no. You can stay there. You can <laughs> stay over there. Thank you very much. Oh, all right. We've had such a wonderful conversation. I almost forget what we're even talking about. But- all right. But let's ladies and gentlemen, let, let's <laughs> talk about the movie. So Nell and I are going to watch the 108th minute right now. Um, if you're watching this expansive second deep throat scene, you've seen an exchange of information. You've seen some sort of hard truths, some, some butting of heads. And we've now just in, in, in the preceding seconds of the minute that we've just watched, a, a screeching car has sort of put a big punctuation mark on the conversation. And in the coming minutes, the overwhelming sense of dread and clarity that 
his life may be in danger sort of comes over Woodward. And we're getting to watch that scene together right now. So if you queue it up one hour and 47 minutes on the dial, it should be the same on HBO Max and DVD and things like that. There aren't multiple versions of this movie that make this a hard thing as some other versions of movies are with director's cuts and things like that. Should be the same. Mel and I are going to watch it right now. You guys are going to listen along to the minute, a very atmospheric minute, and then we're going to come back and talk about it together. much less sort of traditionally action-packed minute than our last minute. But I love this minute. I absolutely adore watching who is still kind of a deeply underrated actor, Robert Redford. I love watching him as Woodward have the, 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 the gravity of this situation dawn on him in this moment. And Anyone can relate to a late night car park, you know, whether it's coming home late from a, you know, work drinks. I remember one of my first jobs, I was on a later shift and I would go in and uh, I'd start at like 1130 and I'd finish at 8 PM. And it meant that about 930 I'd get home on my train. And usually that big commuter car park, when you get in there at, you know, 10 o'clock when you're catching the train to work is absolutely exploding it's it's there's so many cars in there and then at 9 30 it is a ghost town and you get off the train ramp and you do this sort of like that that crunch of business shoes on empty car parks and echoes it, it's creepy and you find yourself because of the reverberations of your own footsteps constantly checking your peripherals as you're walking through and i love in this moment that he's always kind of been like i'm following a process because my source says that he needs me to do this but i think that now finally he's like oh Oh, I think I now finally understand why he's asked me to take all these precautions. This thing is bigger than I ever imagined. I just love this scene now. Yeah, I like it a lot. Um, in, in the scene just before, in the minute just before, he has realized for the first time, as you said, that this is not just a bunch of petty bureaucrats, but that this goes, per, that this is pervasive. Yes. And in fact, it is definitional of the Nixon administration. And because he's talking about who wrote, you know, just before he's talking about who wrote the letter and, you know, and Deep Throat. And I will say that Hal Holbrook is a better Deep Throat than Mark Felt, who was Deep Throat. <laughs> <laughs> Hal Holbrook is a great Deep Throat. And he, and he really pushes him to understand that he's missing the forest for the trees. Yeah. He's like, and that, 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 you know, they speculated it on the floor. Like, oh, this seems like it could be political 
uh, you know, political sabotage beginning right at the right at the time that Nixon was actually elected. So starting a systemic sabotage of the next election four years out and deep throat like exclaims that he's banging on the table. Won't you listen? Won't you listen to me right now? This, this is bigger than you could have ever imagined this thing that you don't understand how big this yeah. is. And so in, again, just a, a car uh, pulls away and is perfectly natural. That's what happens in parking lots, but it just shows you how he's now beginning to rethink the whole world and the way that he walks away, he walks quickly, then he stops, he walks slowly. And as you said, the look on his face, he just does a fabulous job of acting here as it's beginning to really dawn on him what's going on. And parking lots are very creepy. There's a reason that Orson Welles chose to shoot his version of Franz Kafka's book, The Trial in a Parking Lot. They're just very, very creepy because they're not living spaces. They're organized for cars, not for people. And they are cavernous and they are echoey and they are shadowy. And, um, and, and we get all of that. And I think that the way that this minute is cut the use of the music. Oh, the, the, the score finally coming in. You know, the, you know, you can sometimes be bludgeoned with score. And I love in this movie almost as a, as the exception to the rule, it's like David Shire's score is so identifiable and so excellent, but it's tactical use. Like exactly when it turns up in the movie is what resonates so much because it feels like you, you don't realize you know, it's like you don't realize how thirsty you are for it until it's here. And you're like, oh, my God, this is exactly the right point to put this. This is exactly the moment it, that I, I need that. And it again, it communicates kind of the enormity yes. and, the, and the smallness of the individuals working on this matter compared to the, I mean, remember how young Woodward was. Yes. Younger than Redford. But, you know, and... And, uh, and, you know, he's still at it. His book about Trump is on the <laughs> list this week I saw. So the, the enormity, the, the paranoia all comes through in that score. Yeah. And it's, you know, for everyone who has maybe come home late at night when you're in a car park, there's, there's not a lot of uh, subtlety or like I'm going to slowly start this car and hopefully start it and exit this car park spot this early in the morning uh, as to not interrupt any shadowy uh, dark conversations that are having in here. You often just start the car and you just drive off and the tires sometimes screech and you're out of there. But, but such is the heightened sense of tension in this scene that a car starting and squeaking out of those sort of polished concrete floors is terrifying like it's a shock and it hits them and and i think you said it was better than hal holbrook plays deep throat better than uh, mark felt ever could which is true but he also plays like batman better than uh, uh, <laughs> mark felt ever could because he literally that that beautiful romantic like disappear into into a puff of smoke is it's it's one of those very movie things that, it, but it's also so insanely satisfying. It's like, Oh my God, like he disappears. This is perfect. 
Um, and it's that little bit of romantic flourish in, you know, this, these entire sequences are the romantic flourish of the movie, but that romantic flourish that is um, really effective. And then I think, I think the weight of then the movie and the, the consequences, and I love what you said, the, the sort of um, the definitional corruption of the Nixon administration actually hitting Woodward's shoulders and changing who he is for the remainder of this film and obviously for the remainder of his life because kind of up to this point, and I've had the conversation in a couple of ways so far, up to this point, um, he's always had like an inherent optimism about about yes, if the upper if the upper level people only knew that Dwight Chapin was involved <laughs> in this or that yes. Howard Hunt was involved when then you know because he was a Republican and he was you know and he's a very conservative guy in a small C sense and he yeah. you know he's a believer in the system who was sent to to cover a night court proceeding. <laughs> now I don't remember if I told you this the last time we talked. But, um, you know, one of the many, many museums here in Washington is the National Archives. And one of the most exciting things I ever saw was they had on display that famous uh, address book of the Watergate burglar that had HH at the WH. It's WH. That's so good. Howard Hunt at White House. HH at W House is my favorite. At least HH at WH is a little bit. There's, yeah. there's a, the tiniest chance that someone picking it up might not immediately know what it I is. Know. W, w House. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was as excited seeing that as I was, you know, seeing any other document, any oh other God. thing they had, including like Cary Grant's citizenship paper, <laughs> Declaration of Independence, you know. But that was to see that little phone book, that was really something. I tell you what, if I ever, you know, because, um, it's it's funny that you sort of sometimes now, like in our sort of pervasively digital digital world, go back to analog. And for me, you know, preparing yeah. for this show and projects, I'm I'm always got a notebook, and I that, that's how I sort of pour my notes out before we get started on things. Uh, but if I ever get an address book, I'm literally going to the H section immediately and writing H H W H, like and just putting a fake number because if anyone ever finds it, it's just it's just going to be a time bomb of a joke. Um, if anyone ever know when in the, in the movie, the, the number they give for the white house is still the phone number for the white house. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) They'll go five, 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 whatever. But that is, that is the phone number of the white house. Oh my God. That's funny. H H at WH. (laughs) (laughs) That's completely disruptive. No, that's, that, that's wonderful. But you know, I I think um, one of the, one of the sort of uh, other elements that's great here is it, it's the big positional shift. And I know that, you know, this is really getting into formal techniques that we don't get to talk about enough, but in this movie, Woodward is always the one that's bathed in light. He's always the one in these, in these car park conversations who is, is he's on the, he's on the left. You know, we're reading him to the left, to the right and sort of, you know, Mark, Mark felt slash deep throat, Hal Holbrook is kind of, we're reading across the screen naturally in this dialogue between them sort of an inquisitive question and then an answer, a question and then an answer. And the fact that the whole positioning of the movie and then the positioning of their future conversations actually changes, is just a really subtle choice mm-hmm. that, that is so great and, and profound and just sort of like 
speaking to like the reptilian brain in your head from the incredible Alan J. Pakula and obviously Willis here and and Redford, that choice is just outstanding. And I've been watching the deep throat scenes together in preparation for every conversation about all of them. Cause I think we're so close now to the combination of the movie. It's like, it feels like I want to see what's really changing, but that's one thing I've noticed is we see him on the left. He's then shrouded in all that same sort of, you know, almost Hitchcocky and green, uh, sort of underworld looking, uh, you know, dead body, uh, cadaverous, you know, uh, thing that's going on with all of the lighting. And then, the camera pivots and he then from now on is on the right-hand side as these awakening things happen and Redford's wordless face going. And, and so I, I just love that. I love those little decisions that play with you that are so, I don't know, they're so important to how you receive the scenes every time you watch them and how, how, how much you savor them because they seem to get better. But also just that Pacula and Willis in the design of these scenes are like, no, from this is the turning point. So from that moment, from that dime, from this central scene, the first scene, he's going to be on the left. Second scene, he's going to be on the left. Most of the time, flip it around to the right when there's the awakening. And then in the final scene, it, he's coming in from the right. He's coming in from a position of like a bit more authority and power and dialogue and we're ready to go. And it's, um, it's just a really, I don't know, it's, this movie continues to surprise me with just its phenomenal choices, formal choices. And um, I think that that's why f- filmmakers love this movie, like people like Sorkin and people like Soderbergh and um, people like Fincher, because it makes all of those wonderful directorial decisions that help to complement everything that's happening with the script. Well, a couple of things about that. One is another example from another movie of something, a subtle touch like that, that doesn't register consciously, but makes a big impression is in The Shining, every time you see Jack Nicholson typing, it's a different typewriter. Yes. <laughs> And so you may not say, wait a minute, he was, he was using a different typewriter before, but it c- contributes to your feeling of something is skewy, you know? Yes. And, and, uh, and, and in this movie, if I were uh, just to pull off of something that Aaron Sorkin said about um, the trial of the Chicago 7, um, it's not just about the story of the underdog uh, catching the big fish. And if I can switch metaphors in the middle of a sentence, <laughs> it's, not just, it's not just the story of, uh, of you know, right triumphing over um, evil. It's also, as you've just pointed out, very much about the character of Woodward, who does the most changing over the course of the movie. I would not say that Bernstein changes at all, but, uh, but Woodward becomes a much more, um, has a much more complex understanding of the world as a result of this. Yeah. And, 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 and more confidence in himself too. And the great thing about Bernstein is that his cynicism, <laughs> he, he, he actually crystallizes in sort of, his, his change is about focus and is about the work and is about grinding through and pushing through, I guess, his own, his own biases right from the get-go, but he's a guy like 16 years in the newsroom as opposed to nine months is like, like he, he feels like he's seen it all, even though he doesn't have all of those same, those same qualities as, as Woodward. But yeah, the, the waspy hope and, you know, lower C conservatives you talked about to now this guy who we're seeing in this scene, the fir- I think we're seeing this iteration of Woodward for the first time in the movie. Yeah. It, it's a big gap. It's a big gap. And it's a wonderful moment for him as a, you know, you know. It's the nature of conservatives 
for good reasons and bad reasons to believe in the system. That is that is why they're conservative. They want to preserve yeah. the system. So obviously they believe in it. Yes. And some, sometimes they're right. Sometimes yeah. they're not right. But it is their general outlook is that they, they like the system. And you see that in Woodward's interactions with his superiors at the newspaper. And you see that in his, rea- in his interactions with uh, Bernstein. Bernstein, as you said, has been around for a while. He's developed that cynicism that all newspaper people develop because they just are telling bad stories and people lie to them all the time. But if you look at the different ways that Woodward and Bernstein question people, Bernstein is really ruthless in, in the way that he questions. He pretends to be a lot more interested and sympathetic than he actually is. Yes. But if Woodward had gone to see the bookkeeper, I'm not sure he would have uh, he would have gotten as far. No, and you almost have to, that's the great thing about Bernstein in that scene, the phenomenal scene that we've passed with Jan Alexander, like you could have it on a loop forever. That scene is he has to be a guy who's willing to ignore exactly what she's saying Mm -hmm. to, to, to not read the social cues of the moment. Right. And to just sit in that uncomfortability. I think I don't even know if that's a word, but that, that, that lack of comfort and sit right there and go, I'm going to ignore what you just said because I have more questions. And okay. I, I, that, that scene just, I could savor that so much of that because Woodward's intuition, which is really true to his actual character. This is the guy who can extract things out of people miraculously through his, out his entire career, even the current sitting president of the United States, um, uh, which is unfathomable, but yeah. Woodward would what have left that. that Woodward would have left the bookkeeper interview within 30 yeah. minutes. Yes, he would have. And it, yeah, he's he more, pol- he's more polite and, <laughs> you, see that, you know, and, and, uh, so yeah, but I love when, when, uh, when she says, uh, if you could get Mitchell, if you guys could get Mitchell, get Mitchell. that would be wonderful. Yeah. And when I saw John Doman in the trial of Chicago seven, I was like, I get it. I, I, I saw, I saw in my head, Jane Alexander and John Doman. It was like, it's just playing this own, my own uh, cinematic universe in my head going, Oh, that's the, the 1970s Jane Alexander interacting with John Doman would have been, that, that's, that's something <laughs> I would have loved in my head as a, some kind of flash. I would love also to, to see her face when he went to prison, but uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's hard for me to imagine as, as terrible as I think John Mitchell is, and I think he was a terrible person. It's hard for me to imagine that he would have been quite as petty as he has portrayed in, uh, or, or as willing to appear petty, I guess, perhaps as, as he's portrayed <laughs> himself. But, uh, but I think, good for I think, I think if 2020 has taught us anything now, people <laughs> are way more petty and, and aren't afraid to show all of the flaws of their character on the grandest stage possible. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even in the last couple of days of news cycle, and I'm sure that you've seen it, there's been some really sort of horrendous character attacks on, uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, who's going through, you know, who's going through, um, a, a troubling time and they're revealing text messages and things like that, that are, you know, Biden being an incredibly supportive and caring father in the, in the, in the, fa- in the face of, you know, addiction and it's tough and, 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 you know, challenging mental states and all those sorts of things. And, um, and a lot of, I think our community, the film Twitter community is like, wait, 
you're showing Joe Biden send these really compassionate, caring texts about a son who's like clearly got an addiction and is going through a you know bad time mentally. What's next? Are you going to show him rescuing a cat from a tree? Like who is this? Who is this helping? Like other than you guys showing the depths that you're willing to go to to like to really bring this into the mud and like bring people's families. You know, obviously the Trump family, the nepotism is is at a at a kind of autocratic level right now because it's yeah. that's how it's pervasive it is but it's just really I, I don't think anyone i don't think anyone knows where the floor or the ceiling is this year and they, and they keep saying they're going to release hillary's emails and like has anybody told you that you're not running against her <laughs> <laughs> oh god it's like you know it's 2020 right it's no right. longer 2016 I hope that none of that medication that they put you on to suddenly rejuvenate you after getting COVID-19 has not like burned your brain cells for the last four years because, you know, the FDA haven't been able to properly check whether it's going to have an impact on people. Um, you know, it's what a, what a crazy time. What it a is, crazy it's time. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, that's right. You're not running against Hunter. You're not running against Hillary. And you're making Joe Biden look like a wonderful father, which we already knew. Yeah, that he is. I think you know, if I if I were asking questions in the town hall, my question to Donald Trump would be, "Name your grandchildren." <laughs> <laughs> See, that's that's someone who is a a lawyer and b has done a shitload of interviews, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> because you can tell a lot about someone when they're talking about their family, and 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 that especially the acuity of a grand. Uh, a grandparent to not only know when they've got a large crop of grandchildren to not only know them all, but to also, you know, to, to have an interest in their lives. Um, my, my grandmother who actually horrifically and terrifyingly looked a lot like Glenn Close looks now in Ron Howard's new movie, Hillbilly Elegy. Like it just, like, I looked, I was like, that's Glenn Close doing an impression of my grandma who is now past me. She rest in peace. But we used to love as kids and she, my, my auntie who is, um, her daughter has taken on this mantle is every year she would write a card to every individual child in our big extended Catholic family. So there were like lots of grandkids. I think there was like 37 kids and grandkids and all the grandkids would get a little letter and the kids would all get like five bucks. I, I don't know where she got this cash from. We had too many grandchildren for her to have too much five bucks. I don't know what she did throughout the year. Um, but we'd all get a little card and, and we'd have our, our grandma would write on that card. And my auntie now has done it for the next generation of kids. All the kids get, all the kids get the, the, the same card and it's real sweet, but it's, it's very much her character. She didn't forget any of the kids. No kids ever got forgotten. There was always an individual personalized card written from grandma every year. Um, yeah, very special, very special. That's now it is such a joy talking to you. I'm going to let you go because um, uh, I, I I know you're busy, and I just wanted to say a huge thank you for your contribution um, to this dialogue about this show. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your beautiful uh, uh, surprising emails of you at uh, the the the, <laughs> the landmarks of this movie. It's been wonderful, um, and thank you for your time. And it's just yeah, just look, thank you for being a part of the show. It's it's it would it wouldn't be as good a show if you weren't a part of it. 
Well, thank you, Blake. I, I, you couldn't have picked a, a movie that I that I love more, and it's been so much fun to talk to you about it. And I do very much look forward to the day when you can come to Washington, and I will give you the Watergate tour. I'm I'm right? I, I'm, I'm booked in for whenever that is. Whenever that can actually happen, I'm in. I am so. We will ask the National Archive to 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 pull out the the little address book. Hhwh. That's what I want to photo next to. <laughs> Nell Minow, she's an absolute gem. If you want to follow Mel, the best place you can find her is moviemom.com, which is M O V I E M O M.com. She's also an assistant editor at rogerebert.com. You can find her on Twitter, which is where I found her at, at N Minow, M I N O W. Um, I've also put her interview with Aaron Sorkin in the description of the show, so you can check that out. Um, and uh, I'll also put a link to her dad's documentary. Her father, Newton Minow, who worked in the Kennedy administration, started the presidential debates. What a revelation on this show! Absolutely incredible. Thank you, Nell, for being a part of the show. Guys, thank you all for listening. We have a couple of banger episodes coming this week. More to come. Um, Rolling into the finale of the show. If you want to follow the show, it's at ATPMPod on Twitter. OneHeatMinute.com is where you can find all the information there. I am one Blake Minute on both Twitter and Instagram. If you want to support us in any way, shape, or form, we would love if you support our sponsors. If you have a little bit of extra scratch, you can click some uh, donation links in the descriptions of the podcast. Or if you want some extra content and you do have a, a couple of bucks, you can go to Patreon forward slash One Heat Minute. You can find us, our show, bonus episodes there, which is going to blow up, particularly with some of our next projects. But if you can't, we just appreciate subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing, Everyone's having a 2020, so just your participation in the show, listening and supporting us is immense. We appreciate you very much. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on another episode tomorrow.